Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. All right, on this episode, we're going to go back to talking about the situation in Ukraine. There have been quite a few developments over the past few weeks. Many have been unexpected or at least gone against conventional knowledge. And, and of course, there's tremendous relevance for what's going on over there as it pertains to electronic warfare and electromagnetic spectrum operations. So today, I am pleased to have with me Colonel Jeffrey H. Fisher. He's retired U.S. Air Force, 30-year military aviator, electronic warfare officer with seven combat tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Balkans. He's flown both Air Force's EC-130 Compass Call and the A6B Prowler while on joint exchange with the Navy. Jeff also served at the U.S. Air Force headquarters in the Pentagon for both requirements as well as programming. And toward the end of his career, he was assigned as diplomatic defense official to U.S. embassies in Austria and Kosovo. Uh, His final assignment was a senior position at NATO's Special Operations Headquarter in Belgium. Uh, Today, he is an author and consultant. He's written several books, and uh, we are going to talk about those a little bit later in the show. But more so than many people, he has really had his ear to the ground as in terms of what's going on over in the situation in Ukraine. And I am pleased to have him here with me today. Colonel Fisher, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Ken. It's uh, great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You have had your ear to the ground of what's going on more so than many people. And last month, we had John Knowles, who is the editor-in-chief of our JED magazine, And we had him on about five days into the conflict. So there was not a lot of real new knowledge about how things developed. Um, So we were still kind of guessing based on conventional knowledge how we thought things would happen. Uh, We're now about six weeks or so into into the conflict. And like I said at the opening, there's quite a few developments that have been unexpected. So just to start off, I wanted to get your insight on what we've learned so far from a contextual standpoint about how this conflict has has progressed over the last several weeks and and how does it align or conflict with what we've thought about going into the conflict? Sure. Ken, you know, I think that's a it's a good question. And sometimes proximity matters. And and I currently live in Austria with my wife, which is is a stone's throw, at least from a US perspective to Ukraine. So sometimes I have a, a little bit of a different perspective. When we talk about, you know, what what's the conventional wisdom of how did things change or, or how did what did we get wrong? I think I think that depends a lot where everyone sits. Chairman Milley was just uh, in front of Congress recently and and he had estimated that the war was going to be far shorter than it's been. And I would also argue that uh, his counterpart in Russia probably is uh, who guessed that the war would only last two days is, is having long discussions with President Putin right now on why it's taken well over a month to secure their their objectives. Scoping this down to the podcast on electronic warfare, I think that those of us that are EW experts, we owe a little bit of humility as well. For years, we've been talking about when when the East finally uh, you know conflicts with the West, there's going to be this 
mud slog fight in the electromagnetic spectrum. And, and for the most part, that hasn't happened. So we're six weeks into that. And I think a lot of people are now reevaluating, um, me included. You know, Russia had built many new state-of-the-art EW systems, and, uh, and we're just not seeing them. So there's going to be a lot of uh, retrospect on that. What's interesting is, you know, obviously, we, we, we talk about Russia as being the peer competitor to the East, and we've talked about what they're capable of from a technology standpoint. And, and certainly, we know that they possess some tremendously advanced systems in, in electronic warfare, but there seems to be a disconnect happening from the technology that they possess and how they are using it tactically and the tactical relevance of that equipment in, in, in Ukraine. Could you talk a little bit about how, you know, maybe we had, we focused too much on the technology side and not enough on the tactics or the training or even their military strategy, because we thought that obviously they'd want their, their goal would be to go into Kiev, but they haven't been able to do that yet. And, and some of that has to do with the environment they're operating in, Where's that disconnect happening? That's, I, I think we can talk for, for the whole whole podcast through that question. Um, <laughs> well, you, you've got you've got two minutes, so I mean, <laughs> perfect. No. I'll sum it up. You know, it's it's interesting, right? It's been a while since I've been in, but I, I don't think much has changed in the way intelligence briefings work. You know, correct? There's an information uh, or an intelligence officer who'll get up and say, "Hey, here's the new Soviet system, Umpdefrats." That's either a radar system, a surface air missile system, or an electronic warfare system. And they, you know, they go through basically the technical specs. Hey, this thing's upgraded from analog to digital. It's digitally capable. It's got all new processor systems, you know, amplifiers are cleaner and more powerful. We assess it to be able to do this. And and so we, you know, we go from that. We make probably as operators a, a false assumption that just because the capability exists, that they can implement it and we go with the way we implement it because it's what we know. And we just presume that the Russians can implement their imp- implement their systems the same way we do. You know, I was joking with a friend. I said, you know, if you if you have that fastest car at the Indianapolis 500, but your driver's an Amish farmer, you're probably going to have some challenges winning that race. And I think maybe we forgot, we, we focused a little bit too much on the 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 machineware or the you know the the hardware and not so much on the humanware and that's a topic of an, an article that I'm going to have out in defense po- uh, post here in, in a couple of days so yeah I I think we failed right there and not just the intelligence community I I can't you know because I, I got a lot of friends in the intel community so I got to be careful right it, I don't think intel necessarily got it wrong I I can't remember the last time when I worked at the Pentagon that I asked a question of like okay well how well do the Russians implement this. You know, when we talk about combined arms and effects in a full battle space, how well did they train to that level? I I never asked that question, and perhaps maybe I should have. Part of it goes down to how they train. I, I think it's universally accepted, at least I hope it is, that, you know, U.S. armed forces are the best trained in the world. And every country kind of goes about their training a little bit differently. Could you talk a little bit about how Russia trains and maybe how that's impacted the effectiveness that they have in in the field today. Yeah. Well, sadly, even as a diplomat, I was never invited to go train with the Russian military, which uh, which you know doesn't, doesn't shock me. But I gained some uh, amazing insights from a, a, a recent article that that I would strongly encourage a lot of people to go read. It, it was in a in a, a European publication called Le Economia. It's a, it's in English. Don't worry, it's not it's not in Italian. But it's a it's a one on one interview with a former uh, national security advisor to both uh, Putin and to and still a uh, advisor to Lavrov, although which is the foreign minister of Russia. 
And in it, one of the statements he makes is very interesting regarding training. And it's not so interesting because it's Russian training, but it's interesting because it's U.S. training. And and one of the reasons that Russia invaded Ukraine was they were uh, frustrated with the advancements and the quality training that the Ukrainians were getting over the Russian forces. And they kept seeing this and they said, if they wait much longer, the, the Ukrainians, they won't be able to beat them. That's a feather in the cap, I think, of the Department of Defense. I think it's a feather in the cap of the National Guard Bureau because for the last 30 years, uh, Ukraine has been the beneficiary of the state partnership program with uh, with California, who's gone in and, and basically helped Ukraine shed some of those former Soviet Union, Russian military doctrine, centralized command, centralized control constructs, and move them to, you know, decentralized execution where, you know, you give an order to a lieutenant or a, an NCO and you expect them to be able to achieve that order through ingenuity, uh, self-awareness. You don't necessarily need to talk to him the whole time. And that that's that's the big problem. You know, when we talk about Russian training, I was a diplomat in, in Vienna for three years from 2011 to 2014. And, and I was lucky enough to meet a lot of other former Warsaw Pact military officers who, who had trained, right, with under Soviet doctrine and are now NATO members. And they would tell me that their training was, you know, it would, may get out of the sandbox, but there was really no opposition force that they trained against. You know, they would charge into woods against nothing. <laughs> it would be an open field and they'd act like they were charging against something and they would mimic that they were being jammed or, hey, this signal's turned off. And they, but they'd already be pre-planned to go to their chatter mark frequency or whatever. And I don't think there was really any radar jamming. So, you know, I, th- I think that that, that is showing its uh, rearing its ugly head, right? I mean, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this Ukrainian war. I, I think uh, inefficient training is one of them. I, I think Russia's Russia's had a significant problem with the you know the time told you know strategist plan for a battle, logisticians plan for a war. You know that was it was like a week and a half that the eighty mile long or however mile long the the convoy stood there just waiting for orders and waiting for gas and. It was not the most shining hour for the Russian military, I think. And it goes to, you know, when we talk EW and MSO, you know, oftentimes we talk about having to train in realistic environments. You know, what are you actually going to end up having to face when you go into into combat? And, and then, of course, when we talk spectrum environments, you know, obviously we go from the, the congested to the contested to the complex, and we try to train in those. And it sounds like in, in many ways... The technology, the Russian technology might say, okay, it can operate in certain environments, but the the training isn't, the, the forces might not have the training for the, at least the complex EMS environment that they might find in, in more populated areas such as city centers like Kiev. Exactly. And we had talked a little bit before this and, and we had talked about this kind of very question and kind of in a in a construct of, you know, dot mil PF. And one of the I think one of the biggest things that I'm chewing on right now uh, from that construct is, you know, when we let's go back a little bit and we talk about the you know Russian doctrine where centralized command, centralized execution, their forces forward are not going to do anything until, uh, you know, their commanding officer, the general, whoever tells them to go. They move when he tells them and they stop, you know, they, they stop when the general tells them. And what you learn from that kind of doctrine is, is it's very, com- it's very communications intensive. If the communications don't happen, <laughs> the military doesn't move. And, and, you know, we often joke that I think that, uh, that the typical Russian soldier would be more, he would let the enemy come upon him and climb into a foxhole with him before he'd shoot if he never got the order. 
because he fears his he fears his general more than he fears the enemy, right? I mean that that's, that's, that's kind of that kind of how they operate. So if you look at operations, what made Russia think that electronic warfare was a tool to be used to support that doctrine? That that's what I'm kind of chewing on right now. If you know that your doctrine is communications intensive, that you have to communicate up and down the chain constantly in a multi-domain battle space, <laughs> why on earth would you want to bring the battle into the electromagnetic spectrum? I, 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 would, I, I could see why you'd want to secure it, why you'd want to do electromagnetic protect and, and secure communications, but I don't know why you'd want to bring a mudslog there. To me right now, it's clear it doesn't make much sense um, you know, you got reports of Russian soldiers using their cell phones in the battle space now. <laughs> and I, I laugh at that because the advantage clearly goes to Ukraine. Uh, if Russia doesn't want to fight in the electromagnetic spectrum right now, they're 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 seeding a domain. And that this is a this could be an advantage for Ukraine. I, I don't know what they're doing. Again, I'm not I don't hold a clearance anymore. I, I don't which which allows me to be able to talk to you, by the way. So um, so there's goods and bads there. But uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I, I don't understand it. Perhaps the only reason Russia truly got into the EW game is they saw the massive success that the United States had in Desert Storm 1, in, in Iraq, in, in other places. And they said, hey, well, if, if it works for the U.S., maybe it'll work for us. Perhaps, but then maybe you should have thought about your doctrine change as well. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, 
they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is in fact science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. I know we've heard a lot of you know presentations in the past about how Russia has organized its forces well for the EW fight, but and 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 on paper they they may have, but like the the, the centralized command, centralized execution, you know, they, and and they don't have a an NCO structure or you know this basically as as I understand it's officers and conscripts basically and. And so when we talk, you know, dot mil PF, we've had a lot of conversations here in the U.S. about how, you know, spectrum as a domain. And one of the reasons why we talk about it being a domain is because you need to address it across dot mil PF, as we were talking about earlier. You know, you have the doctrine piece, how you're going to fight. You have to have organization. We thought maybe that they were organized probably, but it seems to be that they do have holes in how they're organized. But then the leadership and the training and all those other pieces we're starting, it seems like we're getting a little bit clearer picture on maybe some of their limitations. One of the developments that happened a couple weeks ago is, and, and I've only saw, seen it in the news a little bit, there hasn't been much follow-up as, as I've heard, is, is that apparently the Ukrainian forces did capture or retrieve some important EW system uh, from Russia. Uh, what do you know about that the, the system that they captured or at least attained and what that could mean for under even better understanding some of the Russian EW technology. You know, there's uh, <laughs> I don't know what, how social media is working in the United States, but I'll tell you social media in Europe is, uh, is packed with, uh, with videos of Ukrainian farmers <laughs> towing away tanks, armored personnel carriers, electronic attack, uh, ground-based systems. And I, I think the first First order effect of that is the Ukrainian, uh, there's going to be a lot of Ukrainian farmers who are going to have a bumper crop this year <laughs> when they when they sell their wares out of their own barn. I don't know, again, I'm not in the military right now, so I don't know where that's going to go. I, I know there's probably a lot of people that love to take a look at it. And I think time will tell. I think we should probably stand by on that one and, and see how that develops. But yeah, this this was one of the systems that had been briefed numerous times by our intelligence folks. Uh, you can find stuff most likely in in Jed on it. You can find stuff in Jane's on it. Those are obviously unclassified sources, and even the unclassified sources say it's it, it's got some significant capability. So it'll be interesting. And now that there was some news coming out today or in the last couple of days about new negotiations or ongoing negotiations about contributing more arms transfers either from the U.S. or partner countries to Ukraine. There was an approval of a number of different uh, technologies recently by U.S. Congress, including switchblade drones. What are some of the, uh, from a technology standpoint, what are some of the, the the things that U.S. can or should be thinking about doing and supporting Ukraine from a weapons perspective, and and also even just you know the forces that we have there now, and they're talking about repositioning a Patriot system on the east. So, like, what are some of the things that we can do from an EW perspective to 
keep pushing that ball forward on on, on that front? Well, yeah. So I, I I think an EW perspective is is somewhat challenging. I live in a country that's right next door to Slovakia. As a matter of fact, the Slovakian border is ten miles from from my house. So uh, in Slovakia, just gave an S three hundred system to Ukraine, right? So this is one of the. It's not an S four hundred, but it's a, a fairly fairly capable uh, surface to air missile system, long range that uh, that the Ukrainians can employ. And the the reason that's important is the Ukrainians know how to use this weapon system, right? They're they're trained in in that type of weapon system. I think when we talk about electronic warfare systems, we're we have a little bit of a challenge, uh, and that is it's the same as the F-16 challenge, right? An F-16 is extremely capable asset, but you know, how long is it going to take us to train a Ukrainian pilot to be able to, to, to maximize his use in a, in an F-16? Yes. I, I've, I've read reports that they can do it in three weeks. I, I would, I would tell you, there's probably a lot of F-16 pilots out there that say, if you told me that you were going to give me three weeks of training and then let me go fly against an SA-20, I would tell you that that would not be uh that would not be my dream employment construct of, of the weapon system. So I, I guess the question is, how are there electronic warfare systems uh, that are available right now that could be quickly trained, quickly uh, placed in, could quickly go through the FMS process, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, um, State Department gets a vote. And I think a lot of times we're developing electronic attack capabilities that go against a near peer, as we've talked about, a denied, degraded EMS. We, we don't spend a lot of time just creating, you know, simple jammers that the State Department's going to sign off and say, okay, yeah, we, we're okay with it, exporting this technology. So you you run into a lot of problems there. Not that I, I don't want Ukraine to win and not that I, I don't want to help Ukraine. I just think, I think that's a, it's a great question. It's just, it's probably one for industry, right? Where's uh, British Aerospace Engineering and where's uh, L3Com and and all the all the guys who build the jammers? Where's Cobham? Uh, you know what what can they push? I, I would venture to say inside the Beltway, there's probably a lot of those discussions. I'm just not privy to them. I think one of the the positives that you, you see developing through this is um, obviously this kind of the host of nations, the solidarity of nations coming together, um, where you do have you know Slovakia contributing and. You, other EU countries and NATO countries, and they're coming together kind of as a united group of collection of countries that are using all their re- the resources that they can with the U.S., but we're not necessarily on the front where it can be perceived as U.S. against Russia. That united front, I think, is a positive, and I think that could actually improve how we fight together in, in, in joint domain operations as, as a host of countries moving forward. So what do you think are some of the outcomes of this collaboration across partner countries? What benefit could this have in terms of future opportunities to, for better interoperability, compatibility of systems and training and fighting that could come out of this conflict? I will put back on my my uh, my amateur diplomatic hat for that. Again, I was a I was a diplomat in two different embassies in Europe as a military attaché and a senior military advisor to the chairman and to my ambassadors. I will tell you that the landscape of European security right now is like shifting sands. I mean, think things are going uh, things are going crazy. 
There are uh, MODs across Europe right now that even before the battle is done, they're already taking lessons learned in just the first 10 days and starting uh, in on their their plans, their requirements, their funding. You know, a billion euros from Germany is going to, or, you know, 100 billion euros from Germany is going to be dropped immediately. Uh, there's a lot of countries out there that that never thought that this was going to happen and that Putin would go as unhinged is probably the nicest word I can put right there. Uh, you know, you've got many people who are speculating on the 14th of this week, which that Finland and Spain, uh, Finland and Sweden are going to join NATO. And th- these aren't, you know, just, these are pretty significant individuals who are talking about these types of things. I think Finland, you know, I heard an interesting comment, you know, Finland and Sweden learned, learned two valuable lessons from this. The first uh, rule that, or first thing that Finland learned was, they can't manage the relationship with with Vladimir Putin like they thought they could manage the relationship. There's there is no relationship at, at this point. So that was the key reason they stayed out of NATO. And then I think the lesson that Sweden learned was that Sweden had always been promised as a partner for peace nation in NATO, not a member, but a, a PFP ma- uh, nation that NATO would be there for Sweden uh, should anything happen. Ukraine was also a PFP nation, and I think Sweden has seen what being there for a nation means <laughs> to a to a PFP nation, and they they expected a little bit more, and they realized that they probably are going to have to ante up if that's the the level of support that that their their people want. I I would imagine it would go to a referendums in in, in in both nations, and it'll be interesting to see how they vote. So we're about six weeks in, you know. Based on what we know now, what are a couple of things that you're looking for or watching closely over the next, say, month? We'll continue to revisit this situation in episodes in the future. What are a couple of things that we need to be looking at or focusing our attention on over the next few weeks? When I look ahead, I have to kind of use you know foundational data of where we are right now. And one of the things that another one of those lessons learned that I think Mr. Putin and, and his uh, Minister of Defense Shoigu have learned was multi-front wars are really a bad idea. You know, when they when they tried to attack through, you know, Belarus and then the north and then down in um they tried to Donbass to come in from the side out in out in the east and then they were going to come in from the water uh that this, you know, it looks good on paper surrounding Ukraine, but you basically you give the the center of gravity of Ukraine where they can actually move forces far faster than you can around the outside of the circle. So I think they've 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 come back to that. Okay, maybe a single front war is, is a good idea. They're trying to regroup down in the Donbass, and they're trying to push in from the from the east and and move westerly. I don't know. What I'm hopeful for is that this is a place where you can Ukraine can still make a stand. Russia's lost a lot of forces in the north, probably a lot more than we even know uh, that because they don't they're probably not declaring that many. So how well will Ukraine stand? against that that push from the Donbass and the Mariupol in that whole region. Uh, that's my first one. And then the second one is from an international perspective, how much greater will NATO unify and send heavy weapons into Ukraine? You know, the MiG-29s that they keep asking for, they can fly those. They, they've got guys who know how, how to fly those. The F-16s, I think, are a, a little bit of a challenge. The larger switchblades, I understand I'm not a switchblade expert, but as I understand, there's two different sizes of switchblades. They've been getting the little ones. That they want the ones with a little bit of a bigger punch. But, you know, the, the javelin seems to be, you know, if you're a Raytheon guy right now, that you're pretty happy with that. I think your stock's going to go pretty well. But, uh, you know, the Raytheon and the Stinger, or I'm sorry, the, the javelin and the Stinger are just, they're, 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 doing, they're doing God's work right now. So it's awesome. 
So obviously, you know, the, the, there's a toll of this uh, conflict on, on the ground. Regarding the war, you know, given your location in Europe, do you have any insights into what listeners can do to, if, if they're looking to help Ukrainians on the ground, do you have any insights what they can do moving forward? I appreciate that question because I, I think there's a guy that I'm in contact with. He he He's a CEO of a company in Poland. The name of the company is called Plus Ops, the word plus and then ops. Uh, you can find it plusops.com. His name's Ron Farkas. Uh, he's a 14-year Air Force veteran. I uh, married a local Polish gal. He's in the same same boat as I am, right? I, I married a local Austrian gal. So, you know, when the woman says you were living in our country, you, you live there. But he started the company four, uh, uh, seven years ago, and he's boots on the ground. He's been to Lviv. He is intimately familiar with, with uh, charity organizations. I'm in contact with him literally every day via WhatsApp. I'm starting to donate significant funds through him. I would recommend any company that that's interested, they reach out to him. I know um, his big challenge right now is logistics support. He's got a U.S. company right now that's got 44 pallets of water purification systems uh, to get from the United States into into Poland, then into Ukraine. But he just he he needs airplanes to uh, to move them. I don't think ships are going to work right now. One last question. Obviously, you know you, you recently retired from the Air Force, but you are now, uh, in addition to doing some consulting work, you're also an author. You recently released a book. Could you tell us a little bit about it and uh, the title? Sure. Yeah. So I, I was going crazy with COVID sitting inside. And if I, did, if I didn't do something productive, I was going to pull my hair out and I don't have a lot left. And uh, so I wrote, I, I decided to write a fiction book. I'd, I'd had the idea in my head for a while. It's about a, a former Navy SEAL, uses Montgomery GI Bill to, to go to medical school. And he, he becomes a doctor, wants to, wants to do good things in the world. And somehow he's kind of like, uh, he's the protagonist, uh, Jack Ryan, that keeps getting sucked into bad situations like Tom Clancy. And in this one, he, uh, he ends up getting sucked into an mercenary, working with a mercenary group that he's unaware of until it's too late. Uh, and then he escapes and he's got to try and stop an assassination plot of a, of a world leader. The book sales are, I, I'm grateful. They're ex- exceptional on, uh, on Amazon. My wife and I have broken even. I've written two more books. They, they're based on the same character. His name's Dr. Kurt Nover. The second book, it leverages my knowledge and my love of electronic warfare. So you're going to hear about uh, Compass Call in there. You're going to hear about uh, laser weapon systems. And, uh, and that, that book comes out probably this summer or fall. And the name of that's called Balkan Reprisal. And then the third book, and that'll come out probably early next year. It's already written. Uh, it's at DOD for review right now. Uh, and that one's called Afghan Ghosts. Uh, and it's about, uh, it's a, again, fiction thrillers, but all based on my career. What I would say to the listeners out there is uh, I have a little bit of breaking news for you. Uh, my wife and I are, again, are pleased with the sales. We've we've broken even with our first book. And, you know, we we are uh, seeing the the refugees from Ukraine flowing through and it, uh, it breaks our heart every day in, in this land. So we have decided that... Uh, all, at least for the next month and perhaps even longer, every 100% of all my royalties from the sale of Live Range are going to go to uh, Ukrainian relief efforts. I'll leverage plus ops with, with Ron Farkas. Uh, what's great about Ron, by the way, that I, I failed to mention earlier is since he's there, not only can he tell us which ones are the you know, the legitimate ones, because nobody wants to see their money go to some kind of scam artist in this kind of situation. That's just really heartbreaking. But he also knows which ones truly need the money most. You know, they're 
charity organizations' budgets fluctuate extremely fast. You know, they're they're fat one day and then, you know, hit, get hit with 50 refugees and they're screaming for money again. So so a, on a fairly real-time basis, Ron and his team out there, boots on the ground, can can really advocate and direct for that. And like I said, if there's big donations coming from from some of our, our larger crows and, and AOC organization, which which we love, right? Because without them, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here. I, I know that if they want to get involved, you know, Ron's kind of the guy. But yeah, all of our money's going there. So if you if you buy the book, if you buy them for gifts, whatever my royalty is is going to Ukraine. That's great and very generous. And it's a, it's always difficult to know how best you can contribute to the cause, especially given all the challenges of knowing which organizations are on the up and up. And, and this is a good way of, of kind of ha- being assured that your your contributions and your support are going to the right people. So thank you. For, thank you for that. Thank you, Jeff, for uh, joining me on From the Crow's Nest. I appreciate you uh, taking time out and uh, look forward to having you back again to uh, have a follow-up discussion on this topic, uh, hopefully in the near future. Sounds good. I hope I get some of my predictions right this time because I think I think there's a lot of us that are, are happy we didn't bet in Vegas before the beginning of this war because we'd have lost a lot of money. Exactly. And I have a feeling that, you know, five, six weeks from now, we're going, we're going to be looking back and I'll probably lead off with the question. Conventional wisdom <laughs> has, has basically served, has, has proven worthless. So, uh, but uh, thank, thank you for, for, for joining me here from the Crow's Nest. Absolutely, Ken. You have a great day. Take care. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jeffrey Fisher for joining me. I also like to mention that we are currently conducting a listener survey that you can find wherever you download your podcast or on AOC's website at crows.org. On our website, you can also find more information on our sister podcast, The History of Crows, where we chronicle the history of electromagnetic spectrum operations from the earliest inventors to the latest operations. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.